0: We're we're only going to read ten verses this morning, which is shorter than where we've where we've been in Second Samuel recently. And I want I want to dive right into it because, to me, this this is such a, an encouraging passage. It's a passage that builds our faith in um, the accuracy of the Scriptures and the God behind it. So let us let's read these ten verses and be so encouraged. Okay. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Oops, let me turn my clicker on. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him uh, to Baale Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, Who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were were leading the new cart. So, or in that manner, they brought the cart with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with lyres, with harps, with tambourines, with castanets and cymbals, with that little thing that goes, Ear, ch-ch, one of those two, I think. Uh, verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset the ark. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence and he died right there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. That place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now a minute ago, I said that's a passage that builds our faith in the Scriptures and encourages us in the God who's behind the Scriptures. That might not be your reaction to reading that. And that's okay. It's not supposed to be. It wasn't my initial reaction either. But I meant what I said. The Bible is often criticized as being just a a collection of myths that were collected and put together by people who just wanted to advance this religious system that makes them feel better. You ever hear something like that? Passages like this one deal a real blow to that idea. Because if you are collecting myths, made up stories to advance some religion, what is that story doing in here? You don't put that story in your book to attract converts, do you? When stories like this that we can read and kind of wish they weren't in there, when they show up, that should, that should encourage us to believe the reliability of the Scriptures. Because if nothing else, we know, listen, if that didn't really happen, it wouldn't be in the book. Nobody makes that up and sticks it in like, that'll draw a crowd. But there's more than that. Because this passage, in its brutal honesty, it'll build our faith if we let it. Okay, and if we're not just, usually when we're reading through the Bible, we get to a story like this. Man, We just want to get done with that one. Turn the page and forget that ever happened. Let's just put this whole experience behind us. But if we'll dwell on this one for a minute, it'll teach us some things we need to know. Because it was here to teach Israel some things Israel needed to know. In this passage, we're going to go through and see five things happen in this passage, in those ten verses. We're going to see the right need. The wrong means, the real God, the correct response, and the right question. That's where we're going. But briefly before we get there, because the Ark of the Covenant is at the center of this story, I feel like I better just give you the the Sparks Notes version of of what the Ark of the Covenant was, what we're we're talking about here. So when when we learn that David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem, this is an artist's rendering of what that thing looked like. The word ark just means, we would translate it chest, like storage chest. It's like a cedar chest, only it's made out of acacia wood instead of cedar. It's the size of one. It's not very big. It's a little over four feet long, um, a little under four feet long, a little over two feet high and two feet wide. It's not, not that big and it is a storage container it's a fancy one it was covered completely in gold and on the top on on top of the very special lid that was made of solid gold everything else is is wood overlaid with gold but there was a a, we're told in in the laws is one statue but it's two angels called cherubs that face each other we don't really know what they look like Um, But here's what this artist's rendering. And it's a, it's a fancy storage chest. The most important contents of the Ark and the reason it's called the Ark of the Covenant is because inside that storage container were the two tablets of the 10 Commandments. The 10 Commandments were the agreement between God and Israel. They're a contract. The law was a contract. The whole law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. Everything else in the law was really examples of how the Ten Commandments would work their way out in people's individual lives. And so the Ten Commandments were the contract, the covenant entered into between God and Israel. And when we see those represented, those tablets... Usually we see five commandments on one tablet and five commandments on the second tablet. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that's the way these were laid out. In fact, I think it makes more sense to think they were two identical copies of the Ten Commandments because this was a contract entered into by two parties. I think what God wrote down was God's copy and Israel's copy and it was ratified in blood, and both copies were put in the Ark of the Covenant, the storage container that held the covenant. And then that was placed in God's house, God's tent, God's tabernacle. And God promised, like we read in the passage briefly, that He said, my presence will be above those cherubim, above the the statues of those two angels. And so God's presence, now God's everywhere present, right? There's nowhere that God ain't. But God, His special presence was, was above the covenant. And so God would always be looking down at this contract that Israel, how did Israel do keeping their term, to keeping their end of the bargain? How'd they do holding up their con, their end of the contract? Not great. So literally, God said, my presence is going to be right above the evidence of, that you break this contract constantly. So if Israel was going to stay in any kind of a relationship with a holy God, and they break the agreement... What would Israel need to stay in a positive relationship with God? What they would need is God's mercy. They would need God to not give them the punishment they deserve, the punishments, plural, for breaking the covenant, because the law had curses if Israel broke the covenant. So we can't even see it here because this is a raised edge on top of the box. But if we could look up over that lip, we would see the very special lid. It was made of solid gold and it just fit down. That's why it's, it's actually, it's called a seat usually, but it's not a chair. It Seat meaning it sits in place, like it seals the thing. It was made of solid gold and it was called the mercy seat or the, the atonement lid the mercy lid so that here's what's being symbolized. Here's the covenant Israel can't keep. Here's the God they need to be in a relationship. And in between, God has to look through his own mercy to see the law that's under there. Now that, that box hasn't been where it should have been. Early in this book, the Philistines destroyed the tabernacle. Israel doesn't ever know how to Take care of this thing. And so it's just been like parked in a storage shed for quite some time. Ah, one last thing, very important to today's passage. We're not going to read it, but a couple places in the law, God gave instructions for shipping for this Ark of the Covenant. Anytime it had to be moved, God said a few things had to happen. First, it was supposed to be completely covered. We could read these words. The ark was never to be, seen, to be seen or looked at. It was not to be a spectacle. It had to be completely covered. Only people from one family, not just one tribe, one family from inside that tribe could move it. And it had to be carried by these poles that went through rings on the side of this storage container. And it had to be carried by hand in that one family. Okay then they could they could take it put it in the the holy of holies god's house which was a room without windows or even doors then the priest could uncover this thing no one ever saw it that makes the ark very different than any other religious relic or icon because most religious religious things are meant to be approached stuck on your dashboard worn around your neck right because whatever you rubbed, right, for good luck or whatever, right, because the idea is if I do something good, especially if other people see it, the, the deity behind that religious thing somehow will, will like that. Not the ark. You're never supposed to see this thing. And as we'll see today, you better be awfully careful how you even approach it. Because the whole religious system that was built around that storage box was built on the idea that the God behind this thing is unapproachable to people. All right, that's the Ark of the Covenant and it symbolizes God's very presence. Now let's get into our passage where again, we're going to see the right need, the wrong means, the real God, the correct response and the right question. This chapter that we'll finish next week is the story of how David brought that box, the ark, to his new capital city of Jerusalem. Spoiler alert, it gets there eventually. And just by having that desire, David is demonstrating that he's identified the right need in his life. If you think about where David is at right now as a king, David from a human perspective, perspective is flying a real high. No more civil war. David is the one king over all 12 tribes, the whole nation. He has just for the first time in Israel's history taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites. It's, he's got a new capital city clear up on Mount Zion. He's just defeated the Philistines. Uh, he has almost unanimous support. This guy's got everything, right? But David wants to communicate, no, I don't if I don't have like the presence of God in my life. David doesn't want anyone to have the wrong impression. He's got the right need. What I need is the presence of God in my life. David, I, I, David's saying, I don't want to be up here literally on top of the kingdom in Jerusalem while God's presence is down there in the northern hill country in a storage unit. I don't want to be above God. I want want God to be the center of my life, the center of my kingdom, and I want everyone to know God is the reason any of this is happening. So that's why he says, I'm rounding up the boys. We're going to get the ark to bring it up here. It's the right need. He wants God's presence, like in his life, in his government, in his kingdom. Now, unfortunately for David, he prescribes the wrong means to get at the right need. As I mentioned a minute ago, for the ark to be moved, it was supposed to be completely covered, carried only by one family on those poles. And King David doesn't order any of that stuff to be followed. In fact, the way David prescribes for the ark to be transported is much closer to the way the Philistines transported the ark in 1 Samuel than the way Israel was supposed to. This is the wrong way to go about trying to be close to God. And that leads to a very shocking encounter With the real God. Verses six and seven are one of the all-time record scratch moments in history. You know what I mean by that? This is kind of a dated reference, but this used to happen on TV all the time. Um, There'd be you'd be watching a TV show, and there'd be a very happy scene, and there'd be music playing in the background, and everything would be very happy, and something shocking would happen, and you'd hear this sound effect of a record needle being scratched across the record and everything would go silent, right? And everyone would turn and look at Ralph Mouth because of what he just said to Fonzie and they couldn't believe it, right? You can explain all that to your kids when you get home. They think I've had a stroke and I'm just saying uh, gibberish words up here. But this will stop a party in a hurry. Verse 5 told us that Israel was celebrating, and there's a word in there that means they were energetically or passionately celebrating the fact that the ark was, was on its way up to Jerusalem. There was music, general mirth and celebration. But as they walk along, something happens with the oxen and the cart. The, there's a giant pothole, the oxen stumble, whatever happens, that cart tilts and the ark of God threatens to fall off into the dirt. And so one of the men who were prescribed with the, to taking care of the precious cargo does what I think anyone would have done. He reaches out his hand and he just steadies, he grabs the ark and keeps it from falling into the dirt. And God strikes that dude dead, Uzzah, right there beside the cart. And we're not told what happens to the crowd, but I don't think it's hard to imagine. There might have been a few screams, a collective gasp, and I'm sure things got real quiet real fast. Now, we are also told so that we make, we have no mistakes. God killed Uthah in anger. How does that make you feel about God? If, if this is true, Does it, does it make you angry? Does it seem too harsh? If it's true, does it make you feel like, man, if that's what God is really like, I'm not sure I want to build a life around with Him at the center? If any of that describes how you feel, I want you to know you're feeling the right response. In fact, um, If you read that and don't feel any of those responses, you're probably trying too hard to be like me and God are on the same page. (laughs) Because we're going to see next, David is going to respond exactly the way I think we're supposed to. What we see in verses 8 to 10 is not merely the natural or normal human responses to something that's terrible. They're the correct responses. Here's how David responds. First, in verse 8, his first response is anger. He knows who killed Uzzah, and David's angry. It's like he says, God, (laughs) what'd you do that for? What does Uzzah do? He was just doing what anyone would have done. His heart was in the right place. He couldn't just let the box fall down in the dirt. Right? He's angry. His second emotional response. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He's scary. If this is what God is like, am I sure I want to be close to him? And David's third response comes in verse 10, where David makes at least a temporary decision. David was no longer willing to bring the ark of the Lord to be with him in his city, in the city of David in Jerusalem. It's like, God is like that. I don't think it's safe for me to be near God. And he decides maybe keeping God at a safe distance or keeping myself from a, at a safe distance from God is a better choice for my life. And again, these are not just expected responses. They're the correct response. They're, they're the correct response for anyone who is trying to relate to God, to be close to God in a manner other than the way God has prescribed. Because David's got the right need. I need God to be close to me and me to be close to God. But he's using the wrong means, which leads to an encounter with the real God who is not nice and safe. One of my favorite quotes from all of literature is from a children's book. C.S. Lewis, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's spoken by a talking beaver. Okay. Lucy Pevensey asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan the lion. Is he nice? And the beaver's like, what are you nuts? Nice? No. Or maybe she says safe. No, he's not safe. He's a lion. He says, but he's good, I tell you. Right? That's what David's, he's seen a great illustration of this truth. We're worse than we think when it comes to God. When we compare ourselves to God, we are worse than we think. That the whole The whole tabernacle system is designed to teach. We need to be close to God and we can't get there. You know why? Because we're worse than we think. And that leads David to ask, tucked into these verses, the right question. In the middle of verse 9, David asks this question to himself. How will the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Do you hear what David's asking? David started with the right need. I need the presence of God in my life. I need my life to be built around this God. But because he used the wrong means, he saw what God was really like, which is terrifying. And now David goes, Well, how can the ark ever come to a guy like me, that's the, that's the right question. When David drummed up this plan, what kind of guy do you think he prescribed to put in charge of the precious, precious cargo of getting the ark up into Jerusalem? Do you think, you think he was just flippant in who he chose to walk beside the cart? Do you think he chose like a criminal or an addict, or someone else you wouldn't really like, I'm trying to think of, right? Or do you think he chose a pretty good guy? You think he chose somebody moral, upright? I'll bet Uzzah was a pretty good guy, or he wouldn't have been in charge of the ark. And so David has just seen a living illustration of what human goodness does when it comes in contact with the holiness of God. What he's just seen is we're way worse than we think. Uzzah's goodness, he was president of the Rotary Club. He, everybody loved him. He was a man of integrity. He, he did all kinds of religious stuff and his heart was in the right place. And yet when he came in contact with the Holy God, it, that stuff did him no good. But David does not ignore his, his original need. David knows I still need to be with God. I need God to be with me. He doesn't say, well, you know what? If God's going to be that unreasonable, I don't think I shall believe in a God like that. I refuse to believe in a God that would behave that way. That's what we do. But if this really happened, that doesn't do us any good. Whether you believe God is like this or not, if he's like this, we better figure out why and what we do about it because our greatest need is to be with a God like this. And that's what David knows. He doesn't say, how can I ignore God? He's like, how can I? If Uzzah can't make it before God... What makes me think I can? And so David says, I think I want a little space between me and a God like this. Now before we go on, before we can get any encouragement, you haven't quite felt the encouragement yet, have you? Before we can get any encouragement out of this passage, we better ask a question that's implied but not written in the passage, and that is this Why did Uzzah it, it die? I'm pretty sure I always had the wrong answer to that question in all of the times I've read this. Here's what can't be the answer. Why did Uzzah die? Uzzah didn't. It can't be the answer that Uzzah died because he broke the rules in how you transport the ark. That cannot be the answer. You know how I know? Because everyone else survived. It, it seems harsh to us that God would strike Uzzah dead, but here's the reality. It's all kinds of grace and mercy that God didn't kill all of them. Please don't read this and think, well, Uzzah, that's what you get for breaking the rules. You know, if you break the rules, this is what you deserve. If, if that's your reaction reading this, yours is the heart I'm most concerned about this morning. Because like Jesus would say, maybe you have a log in your eye you can't see. There's no way Uzzah died because Uzzah broke the rules, because everyone has broken the rules, starting with... David. David's the one that ordered this whole plan. Why does David get to survive and Uzzah die? Maybe that's why David says, I don't know if I can be with a God like this. We are shocked by what happens to Uzzah because Uzzah didn't do anything that offends me or you. If Uzzah had committed an act of terrorism beside the ark, we'd be okay with God killing him. But Uzzah does what you would have done. And that's what makes us think this is too harsh. Because Uzzah looks like me. Right? I think that's part of the point. That's, that's, wh- that's why this happened. Uzzah didn't die because he broke the rules. Or everyone would have been dead. Uzzah died because God is a God of grace and mercy. And here's why God knows David is leading the nation down a very dangerous path, just in the way he's going to get the ark. How are things going for Israel right now? Really good or really bad? Really good. And so let's go get the ark. Man, isn't God good? Why is God good right now? Look at all this awesome stuff that's happening to me. So let's go get the magic box. Let's get it back up in here and praise God for how things are going. And we made a new cart and we put good people in charge of it. God's like, I cannot let this continue or they're going to miss the point of the ark. The point of the ark is you can't be close to me as God unless you approach me the way I have allowed myself to be approached. Our God, we we made a brand new clean cart. God would say, you can't make a clean cart because it's you who make it. Well God, we couldn't let the ark fall into the dirt. God's like, you know, the dirt is actually cleaner than the hand that reached out to keep the ark from falling into the dirt. What God needs the people understand is yes, you need me, but you can't have me however you want me. You have to approach me the way I allow you to approach me or you're going to wind up being destroyed by me, not having fellowship with me. And the way David is leading the procession, God knows people are going to get the wrong idea about me is going to lead them down a path where they're going to have no more hope of approaching me the way where they can actually be rescued from their biggest problem, which is their sin. And so what God does in his striking grace is he waits until the opportune best moment to most clearly teach this. And by striking Uzzah dead, it makes David and everyone say, we better take stock of what we think about this God we need so much. We can't have him however we want him. And I think we can trust God to be fair with Uzzah. If Uzzah was redeemed by his faith in his creator God, I think all God did was take Uzzah to the big house right away that day. Best day of Uzzah's life. He didn't do anything mean to Uzzah. Now, if Uzzah was not redeemed, I, I will trust God knew he never would have been. And so he, he made something positive out of his life so that everyone else would maybe make the, a better decision about the, where they were headed with this scary God. We can trust God to be fair with Uzzah. Now, What do, what do we learn? What did David learn from this whole episode? Well hopefully we all learn this. Our greatest need is still the great need that David had. David, why did David want the ark? Was David's heart in the right place? Yes! He knows I need God to be at the center of my life, the center of my government, the center of my kingdom, I want God to be glorified in what is happening to Israel. For you and me, our greatest need is to be with God. Because there is coming a day where we're going to stand before God. Every single one of us. Our greatest need will be to be with Him in fellowship rather than being destroyed by Him in His wrath. Now, our greatest problem today is still the greatest problem, David and Uzzah and everyone else. Our greatest problem is just that we're not like God. We can't have fellowship with God based on our goodness, our morality, our self-discipline, our self-improvement, or whatever, being a good guy, being a good person, trying our best. I never really tried to hurt anyone. I try to help more people than I, none of that is going to do us a bit of good when we stand before a holy God. If we try to stand before God someday and God says, hey, Maxwell, why should I let you into fellowship with me? And I start listing off the good things I have done and the sin that I have avoided in my life. I will be just like Uzzah reaching out to touch the ark. Only I will be destroyed forever and ever and ever. And this passage is one that points to the only thing that is a solution to our greatest need and our greatest problem at the same time. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. In David's day, when when they once again, after David was gone, they'd set up a temple modeled after the tabernacle. The whole thing taught how we need to be with God. God wants to be with us. He literally has food prepared inside his house for us to stop by and share. But we can't go in there. We just can't get there. And God had a series of things Israel had to go through to get anywhere close to God. It always included things dying in my place that I might have some fellowship with God. All of that points to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the only drawbridge God lowered that allows people access to fellowship with him because the cross is where uh, our greatest problem was taken care of. Jesus took our sin upon himself. It's like, and then once the sin was on Jesus, it's like he touched the holiness of God, like Uzzah did, and he was zapped. He was crushed because of our sin in our place. And God says when we believe, when we believe that that's what Jesus did in the cross, then that become, at the cross, that becomes effective for us. And the righteousness of Christ is placed on us because our sin was taken care of in him. I know it seems It can seem arrogant to tell people what I just described is the only way. It's the only way people can have access to God. Like this faith system is the only one that's right and the rest of them are wrong. That seems really arrogant. But just like in this story, you know, in this story where like it wasn't shocking that God killed Uzzah, it's shocking that God didn't kill everybody. It's not mean of God that He only provides one way to Himself. It's all grace that He provided a way at all. You know the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father. Great reading. I highly recommend it. I just want to talk about the first two things Jesus said in that. First, He said we can address God this way: Our our Father. So there is a way for, for us to be in a close relationship with God, our Father, who art in heaven. And what's the next thing he said? Hallowed be thy name. You know what the word hallowed means? It means to revere, to respect. So we, get to, we can call God our Father But we have to hallow His name. And part of that is, if we want to call God our Father, we'd better respect the only way He allows that to happen. That's what God wanted Israel to understand. I want to be with you. I want to be in Jerusalem. I know you need my presence, but you have got to respect that I only allow that to happen the way I allow that to happen. You can't come toward me in any way you want. If you try to be familiar with me on any way you make up, you're going to wind up being destroyed by me, not having fellowship with me. And the encouraging part of this passage in this story is that God loves us enough to tell us this. He loves us enough to show us his wrath. He loves us enough to warn us, you don't want to be here any other way except the way I I allowed to be accessed in a way where you'll be rescued and not destroyed. So, where are you at with the cross of Christ? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your access point is the only way you can reach out and touch God one, one day and be embraced by that touch rather than destroyed by that touch. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word, even the difficult parts. God, thank you that you reveal yourself clearly, not always as the God we wish you were, but you reveal yourself as who you really are And it is a terrible thing to fall into your hands apart from the blood of Jesus. God, thank you for reminding us today, for teaching us today, that we cannot have you any way we wish. We can only have you as you are and as you have allowed yourself to be approached through the blood of Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that by faith, We can be touched in your loving embrace one day rather than cast into judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand back up with us. Let's complete our worship this morning.